Chinese food in Peru, Jewish tacos in Texas, and Chinese tea in India. This week, we're talking transplanted cuisine. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is the place where we explore the cuisine of the world on the Destination Eat Drink podcast and at DestinationEatDrink.com. This week, we're revisiting some of my favorite conversations about transplanted cuisine. But first, let me tell you where I'm at. I'm back home in Setúbal, Portugal. And after about nine days in the States, I had to go shopping. So I'm back at the Livramento market. I mean, the house was empty. The kitchen was empty. The fridge was empty. Needed to do some shopping. So figured might as well do some more recording for the podcast while I'm out at the famous Livramento market. This is a produce market that's been in Setúbal for almost 150 years. Livramento is where I go to get all our fresh produce. Today, it's Local strawberries, they're in season and they're delicious right now. Some spinach, some lettuce, some onions, some potatoes, as well as some broccoli and mushrooms. This is a huge haul that only set me back about 10 euros or $11. This week on the show, we're talking transplanted cuisine. Now, you may be asking what's transplanted cuisine, especially if you're new to the podcast. We talk about transplanted cuisine fairly often here because it's such an interesting topic and If you want to know what transplanted cuisine is, think of it this way. When a dish or an ingredient travels from one place to another, oftentimes by immigrants, that's transplanted cuisine. But really, it usually means a little bit more than that. How does the dish change when it gets to the new place? Like when chilies were brought to India from South America by Portuguese explorers. People in India didn't use the chilies in the same way that the people of South America did. That's the essence of transplanted cuisine, and that's what we're talking about this week on Destination Eat Drink, and I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination Eat Drink. Samantha Lewis is a foodie tour guide in Lima, Peru. She tells me about the marriage of Peruvian ingredients with Chinese cooking techniques. One thing that I found really interesting was the large Chinese population in Lima. And I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. It's a Pacific Coast country, Peru. So Mm -hmm. it's not too surprising that you would have a Chinese population. But talk about the Chinese influence on Lima. Is there a Chinatown that we can visit in Lima? And what might be some of the dishes that we might have? So Peru, and especially in its cuisine, but again, you can see it in different sectors and in the country, is a country of fusions. And one of those, like you very astutely mentioned, was the Chinese influence. So after the abolition of slavery, um, you had many Chinese workers coming to Peru to kind of fulfill that void. So they would work um, primarily in agriculture. And as they continued to work, they were salaried workers. They began to grow socioeconomically, have more acquisition power there, and so really forms communities and pockets all throughout the country. One of the things that they brought with them is our different cooking techniques and different cooking styles. The wok was introduced by the Chinese. So what they couldn't get, though, being in Peru, would be ingredients that they were used to back in China. 
So this is where this fusion starts to be born. You have these Chinese cooking techniques and traditional dishes, but using Peruvian ingredients. So that's what you'll mainly find. You have restaurants. The restaurants here in Peru with the Chinese influence are called chifa. So um, some of the dishes that you'll find, there is a Chinatown. It is close to the center of Lima. There is a main boulevard and a couple surrounding streets. It's kind of a reduced section of town, but it's right off of really close to the main plaza, which is the Plaza de Armas. And some typical dishes that you could find there would be chaufa. So your arroz chaufa, which would be your kind of uh, stir-fried rice. It comes from chaufan, so fried rice. And so one of the things that makes it a little bit different here is that it has a bit of a smokier flavor cooked over high heat. You'll also have another dish that has become one of the flagship dishes in Peru called lomo saltado. So this would be a Chinese-Peruvian fusion as well that is just mind-blowing. So you take this really nice, finely cut sirloin steak, and you're going to cook it again in a wok over high heat, and you will cook it with a type of chili pepper called the yellow chili pepper, some tomato, some onions, parsley, and a little bit of soy sauce. You throw in some potatoes as well, so your fries essentially. You um, cook it in the wok, and then it's served with rice and a little bit of uh, corn as well, generally in the rice. So this is kind of a star dish that just packs a punch in terms of flavor. And this is also going to be an influence from the Chinese. And, and you'll find different variations of this dish, the lomo saltado, like in the tallerín saltado, which is going to be instead of a rice base, they're going to use it with noodles, so more of a pasta base there. But again, with the same kind of smoky flavors, sirloin steak, the chili pepper. So it's it's quite fragrant as well. You have the, the parsley that's introduced in the dish. So it uh, combines a lot of different influences just in, in one dish. India has been a melting pot of cuisine for centuries. Harsh Tanwar, a Mumbai food tour guide, tells me about some of the best. Uh, you know, they're the original Kohli's, or Fisher Folk community, and converted to Catholicism. And they've got Portuguese influence, you know, on the food of Bombay, right? Uh, then you have uh, uh, the likes of, um, you know, you look at the Koja or the Bori uh, Muslims who've come here, and they've given a very interesting, uh, you know, they came from Yemen, and they settled down in Gujarat and then came towards Bombay and then gave their cuisine uh, to, uh, you know, the city. So we've taken from so many different cultures, cuisines. Um, Central India, you had the Malwa region that creates these, um, you know, rice flakes, which are uh, called poa, which is now very famous in uh, Bombay. But they actually came down from Central India. Or you have the Konkani Muslims who have their own cuisine because the Arabs that used to trade here, actually moved their way towards the coast, this coast that I was talking to you about. And they've lent their, uh, you know, cuisine towards uh, the city of Bombay. So there is a great sort of, a, uh, you know, uh, an explosion of uh, food and culture and cuisine that's happening. Of course, how can I forget the Gujaratis? They are the ones who are the trading, you know, community or the businessmen who are here. And uh, they were a very, very important part of the Bombay presidency. And they, you know, you have even their food, which is a little sweeter. Uh, that is really devoured here uh, by uh, the local. And then you, of course, have the local food, which the polis, um, you know, cook, which is fiery curries, um, you know, because they we started, after, um, you know, chili came in much later into India than uh, what people generally think. It actually came in in the, you know, in the late 15th century, early 16th century. And pepper was the hottest spice. And when the Portuguese came here doing trade, that's when uh, they bought in Chile, you know, from Mexico to South America coming down into India. 
and now you know we are using chili as if it's our own and we are the largest consumers and producers of chili in the world and you can't really uh, you know when you talk about hot food i think india comes right on top and it's funny to know that it's not even chili is not even an indigenous uh, you know indigenous um, spice to india okay so the portuguese were all over the world in the 15th 16th and 17th centuries harsh told us about the portuguese in india now let's hear from tom lemesurer an expat from england who's now based in rio talk about the portuguese influence in brazil anything with bacalhau that's the salt cod um that's uh usually has a real strong link back to portugal uh we see um around christmas time especially anyone with a even the most tenuous ancestral link to portugal they start claiming that they are portuguese just that i'm portuguese so are you really um but uh you know around christmas time we all want to feel our ancestral links i guess so um the the cod uh, purchases really skyrocket. Um, it's interesting, actually, all the cod comes in from Norway, pretty much. I think it's one of the few right. countries where they still have really sustainable stocks. Um, and it's a really important business link, actually. Um, so, yeah, around Christmas time, they'll be buying big fillets and they'll be cooked, um, sort of usually baked with a lot of olive oil and so on. Um, but uh, probably a more accessible option is the bolinho. Again, it's another bolinho. This is a, a mix of uh, basically mashed potato, uh, the salt cod, the bacalhau, um, some egg, which just sort of holds it all together, and some parsley. And it's actually one of the things we include on our food tours because it's just a classic. It's sold in almost every bar around the city. And uh, there are good ones, there are terrible ones, and there are great ones. And uh, for me, as a, as a food tour guide, it's really important to try and, you know, we often get people, when I say, oh, we're going to have a bolina at the back of the hour now, they go, oh, we had those yesterday. We didn't really like them. And I'm like, oh, I totally understand. Try this, you know. And uh, that's actually what, I guess, being a food tour guide is all about, really. It's trying to connect people with the best, I mean, telling them what they should be eating, but also which one they should be eating, you know, from which bar, from which hole in the wall. Uh, because uh, if you make the wrong decisions here, you can have a very disappointing time, uh, culinarily speaking. Jose R. Relat is the creator of Tacopedia. He talks about the surprising Jewish influence on tacos. There is really no coincidence that the Inquisition and the conquest of what we used to call the New World occurred at the same time. And Jews were among the people who sailed to the Americas, and it is highly likely that the first Jewish person to set soil on what is now the United States came through Mexico and not New York, as is previously thought. Hmm. So there is a long-term tradition of crypto-Judaism, hidden Judaism, and um, the sort of Jewish underpinning to Mexican food, uh, for example, contemporary iterations include Cabrito al Pastor, which is butterfly kid goat that is um, speared and cooked vertically over mesquite. It's very good. But what I get into really in the chapter is what happened in Los Angeles in the early to mid 20th century, which is you had Jews and Mexicans living side by side in Boyle Heights, Los Angeles. Oh, interesting. And 
they were trading ingredients just like yeah. the Koreans and Mexicans. Like all these cultures the do when they get together. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah. And so you have pastrami tacos, pastrami hmm. burritos, and out of that came a chain that uh, had a location near the LAPD's downtown headquarters. So during the filming of Dragnet, for example, uh, <laughs> Jack Webb would go eat kosher burritos from one of the stands. And it was this really big thing for him. Uh, and you find contemporary versions, uh, but it's it comes in waves, places open, places closed, you know. Uh, but the mid-20th century was a really big time for that taco. If you're a regular listener of the show, you know I love truffles. I even wrote a book on the subject. So I was super excited to talk to Gavin Booth from Australian Truffle Traders about bringing French truffles down under. Truffles, uh, the species that we grow, which is tuber melanosporum, otherwise known as the winter black truffle or French black truffle, Perigord truffle is a bunch of different names for the, the same species. Uh, we grow that in cultivated groves, which is actually the way that 90% of the world's black truffle comes from, is from cultivated groves since uh, a guy in the south of France uh, near the Luberon Valley called uh, Joseph Talon in around the 1830s to 1850s, he pioneered the technique. So so even if you go to Piedmonte, if you go to uh, Istria, if you go to Provence, that technique that we're using has been pretty much used there for their native or wild forests, if you will, and also for the groves since about their 1830s. Kat Neville is an award-winning TV host and producer who makes her home in the St. Louis area. She tells me about a famous local sandwich. Something I've never had in St. Louis, and I'd never even heard of till I started researching St. Louis, is the St. Paul sandwich. <laughs> and I, I, I'm not going to comment on this. I'm going to let you comment on it because, I, like I said, I've never had it. So tell me about the St. Paul sandwich. I mean, it's one of those kind of weird things. It is um, egg foo young on white bread, essentially. Um, and there are various versions at um, Chinese restaurants all over. And it also is a very kind of like mid-century Americana dish. And um, I've had kind of elevated versions of it. Um, but it's one of those comfort food uh, dishes where, you know, there's mayonnaise on white bread with an egg foo young patty. And it's just, it's tasty. And it sounds weird, but a lot of those types of you know, um, like you want something like quick, uh, like guys who like maybe had a break at the factory. They want something that they can go in that's handheld, that's quick, and they can run back to, to work. And that's, you know, St. Louis has an industrial past. And, and that's kind of where that sandwich grew out of. Lizzie Collingham is an author and food historian. She tells me about how tea migrated from China to India. Britain's food world is shaped basically by stealing food from other places or adopting food. So tea, which we all think of as a, you know, the British drink, we're always drinking tea. So of iconic. course, it's a Chinese. Yeah, exactly. It's iconic, but it's 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 a Chinese herbal drink, and it was the Chinese. You know, it's iconic for the Chinese. It's and we took it and we then uh, grew grew it in India and then. 
started up all the tea plantations in India and then in East Africa and so on, and sort of made it our drink. But it's somebody else's curry. You know, people like to talk about the fact that chicken tikka masala took over from fish and chips, which, by the way, was a Jewish um, introduction to Britain <laughs> anyway in the first place. Oh, so um, interesting. And Exactly. So so Britain is basically all these foods that we think of as essentially British are basically adoptions, cultural adaptions, taking uh, ideas and food into society. But it's, it's more than that. It's also, you know, the fact that we went and um, uh, had had an empire, grew sugar in, in the Caribbean and so on, that shaped shopping. So you you get shops, little shops uh, springing up. Up until the 18th century, there were no little shops. You know, the village shop, which we think of as quintessentially British, didn't exist. So people went to markets and fairs, but they weren't little shops. But that, as a result of the colonial products, so tobacco, sugar, tea coming into Britain, little shops started opening in people's front rooms and stuff, selling these little colonial products as a screw of tobacco at a time, you know, in really tiny quantities. And out of that, you get... The changes in retail and shopping. The industrial revolution is is um, grows out of a desire of people to to have these products, so they become more industrious. They work harder. You need sugar refineries for the sugar coming in. So then you need people who make little uh, the iron pots, and it's all because it's all feeds into it each other and kind of creates a a political, a social, a cultural. Uh, network of forces on British society and that shape it and it's not it, it is coming from the outside it's, it's that encounter with the outside world which really does shape the society. I want to ask you one more go back to the tea for just one minute because you yeah. said something that really kind of stuck in my head for a moment there you said that the Chinese of course the Chinese started the tea they, this is where the tea plants originally grew and mm. you said the British brought then the tea plants to India my assumption always was and uh, I, I never studied this I never looked into this it was just an assumption since India is so close to China that it tea just kind of migrated into India that way <laughs> And are are you well, saying that the British were the ones who actually brought the tea plants to India? Yeah. So basically, at some point, the, the, the East India Company in the early 19th century are very worried because they are aware that the government is probably going to take away their monopoly and stop them being having a monopoly over tea sales. So they're worried that that will mean that there'll be lots of competitors going into China and buying tea and that they'll lose their main um, tea makes them the most money so their main source of income so they start looking around for other places they could source their own tea and a chap wandering through Assam does notice that there is and in fact in tea is indigenous to Assam uh, it does grow there you're right it's sort of come over that it's on the border but with China and okay. it is there but but it's not you know it's not a commercial plant uh -huh. and they don't they experiment a bit with growing it. it doesn't really work they don't really know how to make tea anyway so they send this guy to china to steal tea plants because the chinese obviously don't want tea uh -huh. tea plants or knowledge about how to make tea to get out so they he brings back seedlings they, they transplant them it takes them a while and they also bring a, a bunch of chinese people so that they pick up in calcutta like 
because the Chinese um, obviously migrate and there are shoemakers and carpenters from China living in Calcutta and they bring them up to the Assam tea plantations and say, can you help us make the tea? And of course, they haven't got a clue how to make tea either. So it's all a bit of a disaster <laughs> at first. But eventually they learn how to make tea They and they they make, they grow, it becomes hybrid. It's a hybrid tea, actually. It's the Assamese plant hybrid with the Chinese tea plant and then that you get Indian tea plantations and that's how it all starts and by the 1870s they are successfully growing tea that they can market in Britain uh, in India and at that point so 10% say of tea drunk in Britain is 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 um, Indian and 90% is kind of comes from China by the 1900s so 30 years later 10% comes from China 90% is coming from India Huge they completely swap it yeah okay there you go there's so many stories of transplanted cuisine that my guests have shared on this podcast and they're so interesting I'll definitely be doing another episode on transplanted cuisine sometime in the future if you want to listen to the entire episodes with any of my guests from this week or learn more about them check out the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash ded 178 well it's been great hanging out at the livramento market in setubal portugal it's my local market i'm here like three or four times a week it's just great that's it for this week. Next week, I'll be talking with the green traveler, Richard Hammond. Don't miss that. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. April 25th is Freedom Day here in Portugal, the day that marks the revolution that toppled fascism in 1974. That's right. Portugal was under fascist rule as recently as 1974. So to commemorate Freedom Day, I posted a story about an anti-fascist monument here in my town of Setubal, Portugal. Read that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and a guy whose contribution to transplanted cuisine is mixing Mexican Coke with Jamaican rum, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.